so is yesterday, and so is tomorrow, and every day from now until forever. Do you guys ever think about dying? We're in a race against the Nazis. And I know what it means. If the Nazis have a bomb. We have a 12-month head start. 18. How could you possibly know that? We've got one hope. All America's industrial might and scientific innovation connected here. Secret laboratory. Keep everyone there until it's done. Let's go recruit some scientists. So I think there's only one way for me to start this off properly. See, I don't know if I've ever been good enough. If I'm a little bit rusty, I don't know if I ever did <laughs> Corey, I'm I'm just saying I will. I will. We bring you Barbenheimer. <laughs> Welcome back to the wages of cinema for the like the big title fight of the summer. Who the thunk? And we can all thank Warner Brothers. I don't mean just for Barbie. I mean for scheduling their movie on the same weekend as Christopher Nolan, their, you know, prodigal son who, you know, ended up helping him more than hurting him. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, I'm Jack. And, and I am Trash Pandacory. Yes. Yes. Uh, trash Pander. Tra tra trash Pander. <laughs> uh, we're not going to pander to you. We're going to be talking about these movies. Um Specifically, uh, we mean uh, the new uh, Barbie, um, directed, co-written, directed by Greta Gerwig, and Oppenheimer, um, uh, the new Christopher Nolan uh, uh, epic sandwich. <laughs> um, yeah, um, yeah. And by the way, um, for those who are wondering, we are going to get into um, some spoilers. Uh, you know, just throughout, like, we're not going to, like, try to delineate these like we sometimes do, because uh, I think it would just be, well, for one thing, I think most of the country is seeing these movies, and, you know, so, also, what are you supposed to spoil about Oppenheimer? I mean, we kind of know the history. <laughs> yeah, we know where this train well, is going. I mean, we know that part of the history. Maybe you don't know some other things after, you know. After the bomb. But, um, yeah, I mean, the thing to mention right up front, and we'll, we'll talk about one and then the other, but we, um, yeah, these, these are astonishingly entertaining, absorbing, you know, really just extremely creative films. Yes, I felt alive watching these uh, movies, although I also... <laughs> cried pretty hard at the end of Oppenheimer. Did, did you also cry a little bit at the end of Barbie, too? I cried a little bit at the end of Barbie, and I cried a lot at the end of Oppenheimer. Yeah, well. I hadn't seen you cry that hard since, like, I don't know, maybe, like, The Green Knight? Yeah, I cried a lot during The Green Knight. And then I even cried a little bit today thinking about Oppenheimer <laughs> and watching the last scene from the movie on, like, a bootleg loop on Twitter. Yeah. So you gotta be, you gotta give him a moment. Hoppy <laughs> needs to think about his entire life before he commits to the Manhattan project. 
Um, <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, I've been thinking about uh, the movie, uh, you know, the, since we saw it yesterday. And we, we, we didn't quite do the Barbenheimer barbenheimer experience like in the purest sense like we didn't do the thing that some i don't know how many people are really doing this i'd be curious you know after this weekend if we could get some statistics but like so what we're kind of seeing this weekend is you know barbie is really really huge it's the biggest movie um opening of the summer it might end up being you know, bigger than uh, Spider-Verse and Guardians 3. Um, but, you know, the thought, that, well, some, then some people are thinking, well, let's also go see Oppenheimer. You know, and it's, but it's like, even though Barbie's PG-13, it's still a movie you could take kids to. Yeah. I don't know if you can quite say that about Oppenheimer. Oh, but when we went to see it, people definitely took their children uh, yeah, to and, see Oppenheimer. And I'm not just talking about like, oh, maybe like 10, 12 years old. No, I, I think I saw like a child that must have been like five or six. Like, I'm, you know, maybe there's, I, I could believe there are some sophisticated enough kids. Like, you know, because I, you know, my, my, you know, I saw Schindler's List when I was nine, and I, that was a very important formative experience for me. Thanks, mom. <laughs> but um, but it at five or six, I think you're just gonna. I think some kids might just be too bored. I was gonna say, I don't think a kid that young would be traumatized by Oppenheimer because I don't think they would get it. But I think they'd be bored out of their skull. No, and I don't mean to say like, oh, Oppenheimer is a you know, eat your vegetables, you know, dry affair, you know, quite the contrary. Um, and, and we'll get to that, but it is just kind of funny. Like, and to go actually to go back to Schindler's list. I mean, imagine if, and somebody made the point about this on Twitter. So I'm not that original with this comment, but imagine if Jurassic park and Schindler's list came out the same day <laughs> and like people saw both of them. I mean, you know, as scary, I guess as scary as the dinosaurs are, they, they can't hold the candle to Nazis. <laughs> Although, I mean, there is a thematic connection between these movies, Irrepressible Thoughts of Death Barbie. Yeah, yeah. Well, in different contexts, in a way. I mean, because you could say, you know, Barbie, it's more about, like, her realizing her own mortality and you know part of that comes from her kind of tether to the the person who plays her and we'll get into that maybe when we unpack the story a little bit more whereas Opp Oppenheimer I don't know if he thinks about his own death so much as just the you know the monolithic weight of you know what he's done you yeah. know I am become death destroyer of worlds he, he thinks a lot about the death he has brought to other people it's, yeah you know especially when he's you know having to give speeches and in front of other people and oh, i guess you could well i guess that's also a little connection like barbie first kind of realizes her her uh mortality in front of like all her her dance crew yeah <laughs> um 
So yeah, we didn't do pure Barbenheimer. We saw Barbie on on Thursday night, and then Oppenheimer on kind of like Friday afternoon. Yeah, so yeah. We saw... Like technically, we did see them within like twenty four hours, um, but you know we have other lives and jobs, and we couldn't quite make it work. Also, I, but I'm actually a little glad we had some space between the two, because like I. I was in a particular mood after Barbie, and I think going from that into Oppenheimer, it would have been a little jarring. I agree. I'm glad. And I'm glad we did not do the other way either. No, because. How would you have composed yourself? I was crying too much after Oppenheimer to go straight into Barbie, which if we were going to do pure Barbenheimer, I think I would have wanted to do Oppenheimer then Barbie, but. Again, I was crying too much after Oppenheimer. I I don't know. I think if I was going to do it, you would want to do it the other way. I mean, the it, it's funny. I, the other double feature I thought about uh, with regard to people doing this whole thing, um, and this was actually something that did happen. And I I've actually talked about this with my my animation film class because I showed them Grave of the Fireflies, which. If you haven't seen it, I mean, it's, you know, devastating, you know, World War II, Japanese, you know, actually that if, if you're looking, if the people who are saying like, hey, they didn't show enough of the Japanese in Oppenheimer. Well, first of all, that's not the point of the story. But secondly, you can go watch Grave of the Fireflies. Yeah, it that exists. movie will gut you. And, you know, there's, we're allowed to have more than one movie right. on a topic. Yes. But what I was going to say was that. That weekend in Japan, when they first released Grave of the Fireflies, they released it with uh, my neighbor Totoro. Whoa. Which is... it, And and the thing is, the studio or the distributor, their their reasoning was... uh, I mean, again, if look it up. If you don't... Somehow, if you're the, the one person who doesn't know what I'm talking about, Google my neighbor Totoro. In two seconds, you'll realize, like, wait... This is like a cute troll and like a cat bus. What are they doing with a story of, you know, like the animation equivalent of come and see <laughs> like it, it. So but the studio said we didn't think my neighbor Totoro was like substantial enough. So we decided to pair it with this movie. And I'm just picturing all those children who saw those two movies together. What order did they show them in? Uh, that's a good point. I don't know, but it was actually. But I, but I mean, it was released as a double feature, though. Wow. That's why I meant to say, like, you saw them together on original release. I've, I mean, Grave of the Fireflies. Yeah, you were on the floor after you seen that movie. Yeah, I, I, I had forgotten when I watched it again with my class just how like devastating that that film is. <laughs> um, but anyway. Uh. <laughs> well, you mentioned that you and I were kind of proto-pioneers, because I had forgotten this until you mentioned this to me. A few years ago, we saw Uncut Gems and Little Women back-to-back. The, the other kind of semi-forgotten uh, Greta Gerwig um, masculine uh, cinematic uh, you know, pairing, yeah. Yeah, that was quite, and we saw Uncut Gems before Little Women, and I think that was actually a good decision because, yeah. like, Little Women 
it was like getting a nice cooling bath after you've had like you know molten rocks thrown at you <laughs> <laughs> you know adam sandler like freaking out for two hours um anyway uh barbie what do i have to do you have to go to the real world you can go back to your regular life or you can know the truth about the universe the choice is now yours the first one the high heel you have to want to know okay do it again closer i am to closer i am to i'm coming with you yes awesome uh so barbie uh so what's barbie about so barbie is a a story that well Actually, why don't you explain it? Because you actually explained it to your mom via text. Yeah, my mom wanted to tell me about it. Now, what I think is interesting... And I'm not saying you should explain it because you're a woman. <laughs> Although I am. <laughs> Hashtag patriarchy. What's interesting is I probably came into this movie with the world's least attachment to Barbie as a cultural you, icon. You didn't own a single Barbie as a child. Well... What happened was... Or, or did you? Did you own, like, the Native American Barbie or something? My mom bought me Troll Barbie, but Troll Barbie was lame, so I didn't really like her because she wasn't troll enough. Was troll, was troll Barbie a Barbie that had, like, a troll face, or was Troll Barbie a troll that had, like, the Barbie hair? Troll Barbie was a totally normal Barbie, stereotypical Barbie, <laughs> that was literally just wearing an outfit that had a picture of a troll on it. Oh, that's lame. I know. Like, th that's, that is really chicken shit. <laughs> I know, which is why I had, I owned Troll Barbie for like, I don't know, 30 seconds before I was like, Troll Barbie is lame. So... I was gifted Troll Barbie, but I found her so boring, I didn't keep her. Right. I never had any other Barbies. I never played with Barbies. Like, none of my friends had Barbies. But I also wasn't militantly anti-Barbie. Barbie was just totally irrelevant to me as a toy. I mean, as I mentioned, I was obsessed with trolls when I was a yes, kid. Yes, that, that's I was, the context. I was obsessed with trolls. I loved trolls. And I had other dolls, but I liked dolls with a different aesthetic. Mm -hmm. I liked very cutesy dolls. Like, my mom bought me cutie dolls, which I really liked. And I liked dolls that were really small, like dolls that could, like, fit in the palm of your hand. Mm. So I had dolls, and I was obsessed with trolls, and Barbie just was not in my um, universe at all. And I didn't, I never owned like Barbie clothing. I know they made like Barbie movies. So what's funny is when we went to the movie, it was a packed screening, as you can imagine. And we saw so many people kitted out in their pink. And, and people also, I saw a couple of people who also had Barbie cars yeah. with them. I don't know if like, did that come as a special promotion with the movie? I have no idea. Was, like, or they just they just decided to buy a Barbie car before going in. So but, but yeah, this was like th this was on par with like going to like a Star Wars screening in the '90s <laughs> or something. It was that level of energy. And it's what's so interesting is so the movie is, um, I mean, 
could you say like an easy way to describe it has a little bit of the framework of uh, the Lego movie? Yeah, I would say the basic version of the story is we're introduced to this idea that there is Barbie land in the real world. And Barbie land is full of Barbies, living their Barbie lives, and it's a very full community with all the different versions of Barbie that must have been out there. Now, again, because I have almost no familiarity with the toy or the toy's history, I don't know this for sure. I'm assuming all the Barbies in Barbie Land are, in fact, modeled on real Barbies. Oh, yes. Yeah, and, and including, um, and also the Kens. And it's like everybody's Ken, except for Alan, <laughs> played by Michael Sarah, which I was reading up that that was actually, like, Ken did have a friend named Alan in, like, for a time in the 60s, and then it was discontinued. <laughs> That's, I think, the other joke is that, like, a lot of the Barbies... They're not current Barbies. They're Barbies that have existed at some time. Well, yeah, they also mentioned that apparently they made a doll named Midge that was pregnant, and people yes. discontinued that <laughs> because, like, a pregnant doll is creepy. Yeah, well, and I saw... Did you see any pictures of, like, the actual Midge? No. Because it is kind of bizarre, like, to see... Like, because, yeah, it's a doll with, like... A pregnant belly and everything's the same. So our mage are... <laughs> do you think does the pregnant Barbie still also wear heels? <laughs> or do they allow her to have flat feet? Which so will... Sorry. Our protagonist Barbie is played by Margot Robbie and she's called in the movie stereotypical Barbie in the sense that I guess... Blonde hair, bubbly yeah. personality. And she lives in a Barbie dream house and... Uh, the movie starts where you just follow her through her Barbie life and you see all the other Barbies. And one thing you know is that in Barbie land, Barbie land is a very matriarchal place where basically every institution of power is female dominated, as you would expect, because Ken or Ken's as an entity are just not as important as Barbie. It, it, it's like Barbie... You know, is kind of Barbie, Barbie's plural. They're like the life of the party, and Ken is just there. Yeah, so it's very Ken's job is beach. <laughs> beach is basically like a noun, a verb, an adjective, <laughs> a way of life. So the beginning of the movie is just watching all the Barbies live their Barbie lives and kind of getting used to the world building of like, this is how Barbie land works. And then we also know there's real world, which is our world. And there is a connection between Barbie land and real world that frankly, I don't think the movie like wants you to think about too hard. Yeah. Like the, if you, tr yeah. And I think that's fine. You know, again, it's, you don't think necessarily too hard about like, you know, well, why is everyone in the Wizard of Oz look like people that Dorothy knows in her life? Well, it's it's just that way. But but like the but the thing that that is worth knowing is in the real world when Pete when girls are playing with Barbie, that kind of corresponds with the Barbies in the Barbie world, and that's why you get like the Kate McKinnon Barbie. Who is like the kind of weird reject Barbie that, like, a little girl just decided to like <laughs> fuck around with and like <laughs> cut off her hair and made her weird? I almost wonder, like, 
don't know if this is a I don't know if this is a nitpick or just an observation. It would have been interesting if maybe there were like a couple of other weirdo Barbies. Yeah. Like that. Cause you gotta think like the world is full of a lot of girls that do some, you know, they're not all just brushing like their hair or, you know, doing easy bake oven stuff. They they gotta be doing some other things. Like yeah. would have you know what would have been really unsettling if they had for like just a two second gag, like a Barbie with no head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure on this, but I'm like fifty percent sure I might have just popped the head off of Troll Barbie after she bored me after like <laughs> thirty seconds. <laughs> when I was like, "You're not a troll." I, I'm through with you. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But all right. So basically, one day Barbie starts thinking about you know she's while she's having her big amazing dance party with all her friends, perfect choreography and all. She just blurts out, "Do you ever think about death?" <laughs> and everyone freezes, and then she's like, uh, how I could die for this party, and then everything resumes. Next morning, though, she has flat feet, and she can't really fly the way she used to off of her dream house, and something's off. And, and she, she gets cellulite, too. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about Yeah, cellulite. So she visits Kate McKinnon. She tells her uh, what's going on. Like she had that she has to go to the real world and figure out what's what's what, um, which is kind of like I thought that was a funny Matrix joke. Yeah. Um, you know, even though they don't spell it out. <laughs> I loved, I love that joke because there's the scene where Weird Barbie is telling um, stereotypical Barbie, you know, you can go back to how things were offering her the high heel or she offers her a uh, Birkenstock sandal and says, well, you can go to the real world and fix this. And Barbie's like, I want to go back to the way things were. It's like, no, you want the Birkenstock. <laughs> Which, as you know, I am a longtime proponent of take the blue pill. Cypher was right. So my people were represent, were well represented. Yeah, But of course Barbie. she does take the Birkenstock. She goes, she leaves, but then Ken sneaks into her car while she's leaving to like Barbie land, you know, so now he has to come along. So when they enter the real world, Barbie gets an immediate culture shock of, you know, wait, this men are, you know, sexist pigs and things, you know, women can't be everything. And not only that, like the girl I thought was playing with me, cause she saw like visions of her real counterpart. Um, her Andy, if you will, like a la Toy Story. But when she visits her, she calls Barbie a fascist. <laughs> but she doesn't control the railways and the streams of commerce. <laughs> I have to wonder how many children are now going to have, like, they turn to their parents and they're like, Mommy, what's a fascist? Because, I mean, if I was a kid watching this movie, I wouldn't know what the what the word fascist meant. Yeah, so like, so it's kind of, that's a great. That, I'm gonna get to what this movie ultimately made me think of, but let's keep going. So, what happens is once they touch base with real world, it's a revelation for both Barbie and Ken. Yes, because the Barbies, to the extent they think about the real world at all, they think it's kind of a feminist utopia, and that because. Barbie land is a feminist utopia. Yeah. Women can be Supreme Court justices. Women can, you know, be president, you know, yeah. all this stuff. So Barbie is kind of shocked to learn this is not the case. But then Ken 
looks around and is like, wait a minute. Because in Barbie land, the Kens are second-class citizens. And I wouldn't say they are, like, cruelly oppressed, but I would say they are treated like afterthoughts. Yeah. That the Barbies don't value the Kens as, like, equal members of their society. They view them as the add-ons that Ken the doll was to Barbie. So Ken goes to the library and discovers patriarchy, <laughs> which he thinks is about horses, <laughs> and decides he's going to go back to Barbie land and bring patriarchy, and it's time for the Kens to rise up. Yes. And... And meanwhile, like, and then she, like, Barbie realizes, you know, somehow America Ferrara is the mother of the girl who was playing with Barbie, but it turns out America Ferrara's character, I forget her name, um, she was really the one playing with Barbie. Yeah, she was having... And she, and she works for, did I say she works for Mattel? Yeah, she was yeah. having some angst, you know, some of the regular workaday angst. That comes with, you know, having a job and having a kid and having money problems and having body image issues, et cetera, et cetera. So she started idly drawing things like cellulite Barbie and irrepressible thoughts of death Barbie. Yeah, she she kind of brought, like, she kind of opened up the, the real world box for stereotypical Barbie that now can't be closed. Exactly. And then, like, but then, so they find, but... Through a number of things that happen, we won't go through all of them, and including meeting the the heads of Mattel, who are, of course are all men, mm -hmm. led by Will Ferrell, of course, uh, another Lego movie connection. <laughs> um, they wind up going back to Barbie Land, which has now been transformed into Kenland or whatever, and it's like a world full of horses, <laughs> including Horse Mount Rushmore, and. It's just, it's so, so clever. It's so smart because it's, Greta Gerwig, get, she she is covering almost every base you could think of in this movie. Um, you know, and it's like, you know, I don't know if maybe part of it is she was thinking, well, do I want to anticipate what people might criticize this movie for? Or do I just want to make it part of the text? And I think she went more of the latter. Yeah, it's, this movie is, the dialogue is so clever, there are so many laugh out loud jokes in it, it's so funny. Obviously the overarching plot is pretty funny. I also think they do a good job walking the line of making the Kens, obviously their plan to instill the patriarchy in Barbie land is a villainous plan, but the Kens are also such doofuses. Yeah. They're so basic beach <laughs> that they, they can't, you know, their, their whole plan is it's nefarious. And yet there's something almost kind of like, you know, it's like, Oh, you want to like pat their heads. Yeah. Like they're so dopey and ineffectual that their villainy never crosses the line so badly that they can't be kind of redeemed at the end when it comes time to, like, disestablish the patriarchy. Which I think is important. I think that's an important lesson for kids in a way. Because you watch this and, you know, you sometimes you get fed these kind of grim, dark images. Like, oh, the world is a really 
horrible, nasty place. And I feel like Greta Gerwig is saying, you know, men are kind of the victims of patriarchy, too. Yeah. Or they can be. You know what I mean? Like, they get fed all these bullshit images, which, in a great montage, uh, you know, Ryan Gosling <laughs> has this kind of... Actually, in a way... Oh, God, well, I didn't think of this. What he experiences is almost like an Oppenheimer-esque vision <laughs> when yeah. he sees, you know, Stallone movies and, like, all these, like, macho, masculine things and horses mesh together <laughs> you you know i didn't think of that but you're right like his vision of patriarchy is kind of like um oppenheimer himself has like visions throughout the movie in oppenheimer so yeah i yeah and there's a great scene too before when he's still in the real world where he goes to a doctor's office <laughs> and he's like i'm now a doctor no you, you need a degree in all this yeah which is just like Oh, oh, chef's kiss. It's so funny. And also, as I'm sure you can imagine, the movie is absolutely gorgeous to look at. We were talking earlier about how nice it is to watch a blockbuster that's full of actual real sets. Yes. Um, she, she, well, I was watching an interview with Greta Gerwig and she said the thing that she and her crew kept you know going back to was they wanted to make something authentically artificial yeah and i think that's what that's what they pulled off and what i love too in like listening to her talk about the move like making the movie that you don't you don't really hear about with a lot of these you know quote like corporate ip products is just drawing from like this deep well of cinema history you know it's you know like you when we think about uh like just this year you know um like the super mario brothers movie which we were almost going to review on this podcast and it just wasn't interesting enough yeah um or even you know a movie i saw that you did indiana jones which i did enjoy those are like you could tell those are a lot more safe you know, you leave those movies and you're not angry, but you're like, it's fine. Yeah. The the reason why we were going to do a uh, versus where we watch the old Mario movie, then we watch the new one. And the thing is, when we watch the new Mario, like it's not bad, but we just had nothing to say about it. And in fact, it's so kind of low content. It made me very sleepy when we saw it. it you know, it could be another name for it. What? It's a me, Midio. <laughs> Midio. <laughs> Mid. But uh, yeah, this movie, it's so. But but it's just, you watch it and she doesn't make it to the references too obvious though. Like, because again, for someone, not, I'm not trying to say this in like a putting down kind of way, but for someone like you, I mean, you don't know like you know, Powell and Pressburger, like Matter of Life and Death or The Red Shoes, um, you know, or, you know, but but she can put that in there and it still works for like a general audience. Yeah, the, it's layers. So there are... Oh, and it's a musical too. There are tree. Oh, and I mentioned now... Which is, so it also draws from Jacques Demi, Jacques Tacti. I, I wanted to mention that. So... One thing, um, 
the movie La La Land. I like this movie. It's a good movie. I, I think it's an amazing movie. But I didn't go nuts for it the way everyone else did. Like, to me, it's a perfectly acceptable, good, like, three and a half star out of five movie. Like, I didn't think it deserved to be within, like, 20 feet of, like, an Oscar podium, for instance. Even though I like the movie. But I did have a beef with the movie. And my beef was... Why did they cast Ryan Gosling, who, on the basis of La La Land, I was like, this guy can't sing. What's the deal? Why'd they cast him in this movie? Because he doesn't sing very much in the movie, and when he does sing, I don't think he sings well, frankly. So, yeah, see, I mean, I kind of disagree with that only because what they ask him to sing in La La Land, he does fine. I mean, is the, is it the best song in the movie? No. But... You know, different different strokes. So, I always had this bit of a chip on my shoulder about Ryan Gosling in La La Land. And it's not that his performance is bad, like, outside of the music. But I, for years, I would periodically think or say, like, what's the deal? Why did they cast <laughs> this guy in this movie? He can't sing. He's not made for musicals. Well, let me tell you. He's so good. He's <laughs> phenomenal. He He's... It's like, it, it, this is among, like, the very best. It, actually, this is the best performance he's ever given. Yeah, this... So uh, funny, so charged up. He he's, he's committed to the bit. He, oh my god, he's so committed. And he actually sings really well in this. He does yeah. multiple musical numbers, and he kills all of them. So I'm like, where was this energy in La La Land when you were in a highly acclaimed musical several years ago? I, I'm telling, you know, it, I know the temptation will be to give, like, the Billie Eilish song the Oscar nomination, you know, and I get it, but, like, I am Ken. Uh, yeah. That's got to be, like, on Oscars night. You know, like, how can we not see Ryan Gosling leading his army of Kens across the stage? <laughs> do Like, that's like this year's not to not to. <laughs> I know, and yeah, this this is clearly yeah the highlight of Ryan Gosling's entire career. It, it, he's so funny in it. It's like <coughs> it, he sometimes isn't even. He's just kind of standing there, and he's just even the I like I'll beat you off gag, <laughs> which I saw in the trailer, and I was kind of like, okay, that's even that he makes funny again, and. He had a minor role in Barbie, but anyone who listens to our Shang-Chi review knows I've kind of thing against Simu Liu. That, w that was him. Because I thought, no, granted, I don't think the movie gave him a lot to work with. I thought he was real weak sauce in Shang-Chi, and I was like, man, this guy's got the screen presence of, like, I don't know, a damp potato. But... <laughs> He was good in this. Yeah. Oh, he was excellent. Yeah. I mean, the whole cast is so much fun. I mean, Issa Rae is here. Um, we mentioned America Ferrara. Um, Rhea Perlman, oh, yeah. of all people, shows up. And, um, oh, you know who I thought was really good, even though she like only had one line? The, the moment when, and I think this is where the movie has like actually a lot of heart. Too. There's this moment when Barbie is in the real world, you know, and she's been kind of, you know, thrown for a loop about a lot mm -hmm. of things she's been seeing. 
she sits down at this bus stop and there's like this little old lady sitting there and she just looks at her cause she's, you know, it, it's, it's pretty clear. The movie doesn't have to even tell us she's never seen anybody who looks like this, yeah. but she just knows like you're beautiful. And the old lady says, I know it. I was it's so sweet. And that was like, not like a real actress. That was like a costume designer who's worked in Hollywood for like, decades yeah and that was like that kind of shows what you know after you strip away a lot of the you know the candy coating and the humor that this movie does have like a soul to it yeah. which is not what you could say about super mario brothers and also it goes without saying of course margot robbie is incredible in this of course oh yeah so yeah ex yeah one of her very best too like she she's um, you know, the the kind of charge that she has, where she's so bright and chipper in that first half hour, but then as the movie goes on, you kind of see like the cracks coming, but it's still like she's trying to hold on to her tether. It's like, oh, her body language is incredible. Like there are multiple scenes in the movie that involve her having to do things like contort her feet, or there's this scene where she's at her lowest point emotionally <laughs> and she collapses like a doll. Yes. Would collapse and the way that she manages the doll like body language. Yeah, she the way she slumps over and then falls like over flat like it looks exactly like a doll would that you kind of drop on the floor like looking the other way. Yeah. And yeah, it, it's and then by the time you get into that last act of the movie and the when she has like her heart to heart with Ken, it's like really good. And that I think it's really important that they get that right. I mean, the thing that I mentioned to you about this movie when when we got out of it and I had a, a take that I don't know if I've seen anyone else say about this this movie to me, this is like the best Muppet movie I've ever seen that isn't made by like Jim Henson because it's when you watch like the classic Muppet movies and Muppet TV shows, you know, you have a lot of very, very self-conscious, irreverent, everyone knows they're in a movie and TV show type of, you know, humor and outlook. But when they have to get to, you know the heartfelt material they that they that that really still works because you could tell they really are in it and that's like th this has incredible like muppet movie energy which i didn't when i was watching it i didn't think of that i was thinking a lot of toy story oh well that too yeah but once you said it i was like yeah big muppet energy yeah it, even down to like you know when you watch a muppet movie and they have like uh I almost feel like this did like the boardroom type scene even better than in the Muppets. And I like that one a lot. Like, you know, with Chris Cooper. I love that. Oh, they also kind of do an even improved version of traveling by map. <laughs> yeah, they kind of did. Um, yeah. And it's, you know, and also like Muppets, it's like a musical and it, yeah, it's, it's almost like the reverse where sometimes people on social media are like, what if we turned this story into the Muppets version of this? And instead it's like, no, we turned the Muppets version of this into 
a live action movie. Yeah. If so, that makes sense. But again, and that's you know, that's a pretty high compliment for me is like a lifelong I'm not saying like this person is Kermit, this person's Miss Piggy, although Ken is kind of Miss Piggy. <laughs> um but yeah. Yeah, I think this basically checks every box you could hope for for a kind of like quote unquote IP movie. I feel like this is pretty much the platonic ideal of the form yeah. in the sense that like if you're gonna make a big blockbuster, um You you gotta care. Yeah. You gotta care. And this <laughs> un if you um like came into this movie and didn't speak English, you could appreciate it purely on an eye candy level. Well, not only that, I think too, if you didn't know English, like you could still understand most of the movie just on a visual level because of how everyone acts. I think that's also a sign of like what can be a great film too. Like you, you can tell what's going on in a scene just by the visual language. You know, I, I've sometimes done that with like my film classes, show them a scene and ask like, what do you think's going on here without like the original English language? Yeah. And as you mentioned, the dialogue, like, on a line-by-line -line level is incredibly clever. When it goes for heartfelt, it goes for it. Mm -hmm. The emotional beats land perfectly. And you know me, I am an advocate of, like, big feelings Yeah. in the cinema. I want all the feelings all the time. I just want, like... <laughs> well, earn the feelings. I yeah. mean, I don't like, you know, I don't like sentimental cloying stuff. You know, that that's... Yeah, you know, I'm not a big fan of that necessarily. But, you have to, but you have to earn it. When you do earn it, you know I'm like the puddle right with you. Yes, <laughs> we are the puddle. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, again, I, I don't know how much else I can say to praise this movie. Yeah, it's just well, very well acted, very, you know, v for the kind of movie that it is, especially in this kind of climate, it's. What I again, it, I can't stress enough. What's great is that they wanted to just make a entertaining, you know, very you know, kind of you know, chain you know, fantastical movie first, and then it's like, all right, if you want to buy the product later, you can, you yeah. know. But that's why I think it it worked also for me. Yeah, it shows that it's not pandering. I didn't watch. Because I was, I even watching the trailer, it's like you watch something like Barbie and then you see like, I don't know, Transformers, Rise of the whatever. Yeah. And you see that and you kind of know like, uh, all right, there's no one of those. But something about Barbie, you just know like, oh, this is kind of more, this is a little more special. It was, I really, really, really liked it. I would highly recommend it. Um, yeah. Do you want to transition to Oppenheimer? Let's go into Oppie. <laughs> All right, Oppie, you're up. Let's, they call let's... him Oppie in the movie. We're not just being weird. <laughs> just in case anyone no. hasn't listened, yeah, let, hasn't seen the movie. Right. So let's yeah, let's let's transition into Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Build a town. Build it fast. We don't let scientists bring their families. We'll never get the best. Why would we go to the middle of nowhere for who knows how long? Why? Why? 
How about because this is the most important thing that ever happened in the history of the world? You're the great improviser, but this... you can't do in your head. Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? Chances are near zero. Near zero. What do you want from theory alone? Zero would be nice. You know, this, uh, you know, this is the story of J. Robert Oppenheimer. Um, we, by the way, what does the J stand for? Nothing. Um, he uh, was a, a, a physicist, uh, you know, basically brought um, what, what kind of quantum physics, basically, yes. to America. And, you know, he got tapped in, uh, you know, early 1940s uh, because of his innovations uh, by the government. You know, we need a, uh, you know, maybe you can help us with some type of bigger weapon. And, you know, he knew and the government knew, like, well, the Germans are already ahead of us. They have other scientists, uh, including that darn Heisenberg. <laughs> he can't keep getting away with this. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, sorry. You mentioned Heisenberg in, a, in yeah. something. I'm going to think of Breaking Bad. Um, but yeah, so then he, you know, has this whole plan. Like, I'm going to go and, you know, we should create an entire town. You know, all the scientists, all the people working need to be together. You can't have them going from, like, one town back to this. Everything needs to be really locked down. And so it's, so part, so a big part of the movie, of course, is the story of, how the atomic bomb was created as you'd expect what you don't expect is that it's also the story of robert oppenheimer in the context of the world that he's created both you know within himself you know what's his role in this world and also the world of politics and how once you get government and politics involved with you know, weapons of mass destruction, it's going to be extremely difficult to keep that, you know, you know, in any kind of order, especially when people have their own agendas, you know, you have, you know, political power games constantly going on, including, you know, even before the Cold War, things with Russia. And then, of course, after the war, how, well, we're now in it with Russia and, it you know it, it's in it, it, in part it's also in the the structure of the film if you needed like a quick touchstone the way i mentioned lego movie with barbie if you've seen the social network it has a little bit of that kind of framework in that um it's it's robert oppenheimer in a hearing it's also robert Downey jr um he plays this character lewis strauss uh who's trying to get a cabinet p- position uh in the 1950s he's at a hearing um and of course that whole hearing they're asking about his time with oppenheimer and so it's like you know him you know is he going to be able to have a position still as this authority in the government or is he going to lose that that kind of goes back and forth in time with you know his ascension um i don't know did i explain it kind of well yeah, I would say this movie is incredibly dense. I've tried to I tried to bottle it in the simplest way I can. It's a non-linear Christopher Nolan movie. 
But I, I was trying to think of if I had to try to boil down this movie into its core message. Um, I would say my take on like the core message of Oppenheimer is, I would say the core message is that intellectual and technological progress outstrips political, emotional, and moral progress. I would say oh, Oppenheimer is good. about how the creation of the atomic bomb is the point where we as humans are kind of raw intellect and our raw capacity to create outstripped yeah. our ability to deal with what we've done. Because yeah. one of the things I think Oppenheimer does so well is it juxtaposes the like awesome power of the bomb with the small, petty, mm-hmm. stupid feelings yeah. and grievances right. and gripes of the people who made well, it. Well, what I thought was interesting uh, just before we started recording... Um, I was watching Christopher Nolan uh, in a video talking about some of the influences mm-hmm. on him in making this movie. Kind of like I also watched, you know, a video Greta Gerwig mm-hmm. talking about Barbie. And he mentioned Amadeus. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think of that. And now it, it kind of made more sense that, you know, you have somebody who, you know, every time you have somebody who is, you know, has this very unique you know, forward thinking mind, you know, mind that's analyzing all these things like an Oppenheimer or again, Mm -hmm. Mozart is, you know, if you want to call Oppenheimer genius of a kind, you know, that's, you could do that. There's going to be someone else who's looking at him like, you know, who the fuck do you think you are? And that's kind of Louis Strauss who, you know, the kind of central event of the movie and the, and what you finally come back to at the very end is Louis Strauss feeling like, you know, I got snubbed because Albert Einstein didn't look me in the eye. <laughs> and so I'm going to kind of ruin this. You know, it's also because he, Oppenheimer kind of embarrassed Strauss in another hearing. But he, like, he, he just, you know, he can't stand it. So he's, yeah, it, there's this rivalry. And it's a great rivalry story couched also in this, you know, extremely personal subjectively told uh, story of this guy. And that's, watching it, what I'm still thinking about today, and what you've mentioned about, you know, the progress Mm -hmm. is really important. But I think what I found so impactful for me is just the way that it was told visually. Um, Like, I think Christopher Nolan is getting really even more sophisticated as his career goes on and he keeps making more films um both in how he gets the audience he wants us to get inside oppenheimer's mind which is not an easy thing to do but he has you know all this runtime to do it and there are times where he'll cut to these quick shots of like these visual effects of particles you know, atoms kind of splitting apart and it's just, uh, you know, that's incredible itself. But then there are also these moments when he's in front of, uh, like Oppenheimer's in front of this uh, audience after they've dropped the bomb and he has to give this, uh, like, rah-rah America's awesome speech. 
and he's just internalizing all of the devastation that he it's visualized with this big you know blinding white light and he sees this uh you know woman whose face has been scarred by nuclear devastation um played by christopher nolan's daughter by the way um (laughs) which is a touch and i almost equate it to like scorsese with taxi driver or something how he gets you inside of a mind that i think a lot of us would not normally want to be inside of but to you know experience it through this film it's extremely absorbing and visceral yeah now i said you and and i want to sorry i wanted to ask you if you could also explain your international relations thing Oh, that yeah. That you talked after, to Andrew about the, after the movie. Okay. Now, when I name check this guy, I am not endorsing all of his views in his very long political science career. But if you're familiar with the concept of offensive neorealism. Uh, um, I think one audience member said, <laughs> eh, maybe. <laughs> Can okay. you give a Cliff Notes version of that? Okay. Because this is not neorealism like the Italians did in the so, 40s. <laughs> very briefly, um, the concept of neorealism in international relations is based on the idea that the international system is characterized by anarchy. And mm. by anarchy, we mean there is no authority above the state. Like, there is no power above the state regulating the activities of great power nations. So Mm -hmm. if you're a great power nation, like the United States, um, anarchy says there's no authority above you capable of reigning in your actions. And if we look at World War II, obviously other great powers at the time, like Germany, China, Russia, Japan, et cetera, et cetera, a neorealist would say there is no authority capable of regulating the conduct Mm -hmm. that these countries engage in. So neorealism predicts, if you're familiar with um, like Thomas Hobbes, the Leviathan, the war of all against all in the state of nature, life is nasty, poor, solitary, brutish, and short. (laughs) Offensive neorealism. I I, I remember that rap album. (laughs) But, Offensive neorealism is a variant of neorealist thought that predicts a very high level of conflict between great power nations in the international system because they're going to be in this constant battle for control of the international system. Because another component of neorealism is the belief that power is finite in the international system. And if one great power becomes more powerful every other great power becomes less powerful so if you're neorealist you believe power is kind of like a pie and if you Mm, cut yourself a bigger slice of the pie everyone else gets less so mir uh john mearsheimer who's i thought i think considered like the father of offensive neorealism when he laid this out he wrote this book and he called it the tragedy of great power politics because he said that this very he argued that this very high level of conflict in the international system doesn't come from the personal foibles of the rulers of great power countries. Mm. So Mearsheimer argues that like conflict between great powers doesn't stem primarily from like the leaders of great powers being bad people. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't stem from their personal moral defects. It stems from 
the inevitability of conflict in this mm. very harsh, like, state of nature anarchic system. So he argues that, like, this is a tragedy. That yeah. even if kind of, like, kindly benevolent people right. were somehow in control of great power nations, the harshness of the international system would, like, turn them into monsters. Yeah, which, and so in other words, that's, and that's what they're, you're, you're kind of seeing a bit, at least a bit in Oppenheimer. Uh, in particular, I mean, would you say that that is playing out at least a bit in the scene where Oppenheimer meets Truman? Yes, I would say that because... By the way, Truman, played by Gary Oldman, you know, not too many actors could say they played Churchill <laughs> and Truman. So, yeah, I would say the scene where Oppenheimer meets he, Truman... He, got, he has to play Stalin next. <laughs> I bet he could do it. <laughs> and Oppenheimer feels guilt about the bomb. And he says to Truman, I have blood on my hands. And Truman has no interest in this. And first of all, he says, do you think the people of Japan care? Like, what you think about what you did? Yeah, it's so so icy. You know, he cared, you know, it's like they care about what Amer what we did. That, yeah. you know, what I did. What And the, I dropped the bomb. And then he says, Hiroshima is not about you. Yeah, the, it's like so chilling. It's like, you you got to curb your ego because my ego is much bigger yeah. than yours. And it's <laughs> such a monstrous moment. And I can believe like now did Nolan, you know, he did he write that scene for maximum, you know, dramatic impact? Yeah. I mean, I, I was actually reading an article in the Washington Post actually just before we recorded. Mm. Like, I think Truman, he didn't say anything directly to Oppenheimer like he because Oppenheimer did say that, you know, I yeah. think I have blood on my hands. Truman started to say, oh, no, no, you're fine. But then behind the scenes to his cabinet, he's like, you know, what a wuss. Yeah, he said, get that crybaby out of my office. Yeah, which, what a, you know, God, what a, you've got to kind of rationalize something like that to such an extent. And, you know, like, oh, my God. But I think. The reason why I thought of, like, Mearsheimer and the tragedy of great power politics is I think one of the things Oppenheimer is wrestling with, again, is this idea that we have the power to create this technology that is so beyond our capacity to even, like, conceptualize. Yeah. And I think one of the points of Oppenheimer is, like, our political system can't really manage weapons of this magnitude. Yeah. We can't really wrestle morally with what it means yeah. to use weapons like this. Well, and we can't deal with it emotionally. Well, the other scene, too, I just... Well, I also... There's also the other scene when Oppenheimer's sitting with all of these, like, generals and mm -hmm. chiefs of staff and whoever in that room. Uh, I think uh, James Remar is in that yeah. scene. Um and they're talking about, you know, what, you know, what could they possibly do in leading up? To, you know, are they going to just immediately, you know, are they going to drop the bomb on a city? Are they going to test? How, what's the testing process mm -hmm. going to be like? Are they going to invite the Japanese to see the test? Yeah. Like you would think like in hindsight, you know, like, well, could, you know, maybe they should have tried to get the Japanese more on board, like. 
And there's also an interesting little moment too because you hear like, well, because the general played by Matt Damon, mm -hmm. he keeps impressing like, we need to do the test before Potsdam. We need to do the test before Potsdam. You know, the Potsdam uh, you know, fam infamous uh, peace conference. Yeah. And then like, after, you know, when Matt Damon later comes to Oppenheimer, he asks him, so what happened there? Did you br have a brief? Eh, more like a kind of a, you know, quick thing. <laughs> You know, it, it wasn't, you know, a reference. So it's like, so did Stalin really understand the scope of what you were about to do? Like, to in unleashing a weapon that would that could take out hundreds of thousands of people? And I also, in that scene with the generals, there's that chilling aside when they, they're talking about they've drawn up a list of potential Japanese cities to bomb. And then one of them is like, well, we can't bomb Kyoto because of its cultural significance. And then he's like, also, I went on my honeymoon there. And you know, that's the real reason. And I'm just thinking, you know, if that guy had honeymooned in Hiroshima or Nagasaki, yeah. hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah, yeah. You know. And and it's, it's the kind, and ultimately, a lot of the... You know, what ends up, what's really fascinating about the movie is actually the last hour. Because they, the real, like, you could say a, I don't know if you'd call it the, it's not the climax of the movie necessarily, but, like, a major high point is leading up to that testing of the bomb. Yeah. And it's an incredibly orchestrated, you know, series of, like, mounting tensions as, you know, are they going to get it to this point? Are they going to have to postpone it because of the rain? No, we can't postpone it. It has to be done tonight. Oh, no, don't worry about it. The rain will go away, blah, blah, blah. And finally they do it. And and then there's still like a whole like 45 minutes to an hour of the movie that's just the rest of these hearings that we've been seeing sprinkled out throughout the rest of the movie and I've seen a couple of people criticize the film like, oh, the movie is so great for two hours, but then that last hour is kind of dull. No, you need that that part of the movie. It's it's essential because you need to understand what, you know, a country like, Opp like, like the United States only really viewed Oppenheimer as useful in as much as what they could, what he could do for them. And as yeah. soon as that it was convenient they could go they could then pull out the whole like well you're really a communist like your wife was a communist you're you have all these security issues blah blah, blah. well yeah one of the things and they bring in like all of his former colleagues i'm sorry yeah one of the things i love about it is as soon as the detonation is successful the test detonation oppenheimer immediately loses complete control of the bomb and he becomes no different than a regular civilian like they take it away immediately and he's trying to talk to the general about well, what are you gonna do what are like what's the plan and the general obviously treats him no differently than a man on the street and he finds out about the bombing of hiroshima when everyone finds yeah out about on the, the radio bombing. exactly it, it's like the people who find out like they've been fired by tweet <laughs> not quite that but and I also think the movie does a good job showing the conditions under which people make decisions like this. Yes. Because I said to you, I obviously understand, like, the, like, 
horror that was like wrought upon innocent people because of the atomic bomb. But I also understand why America developed it. It's very plausible. Like, would it have been better for Nazi Germany to have the bomb? Right. And yeah. this whole, I understand the extreme pressure to end the war. And what are we going to do to get Japan to surrender? Um, yeah. And, and of course, then there's and also the pressure of, you know, somebody has got like somebody has snuck out secrets, you know, to the Russians. Now they have a bomb. You know, what's going to happen then? Um, and yeah, yeah, they, they do. The movie does an excellent like this, just a really like almost with surgical precision, like this kind of inquiry into, you know, this impossible situation of, you know, how if you're involved with this, you know, what does this do to your soul? What does this do to your mind? You know, and it, you know, and I still think, you know, I think what Nolan, you know, if we're, I don't know if you, this is even something you can re, you're going to have to read in between the lines. I think it's just there in the text of the movie is, you know, nations still haven't grappled with it. We're yeah. still, you know, the fact that we still have nuclear weapons, the fact that, you know, we, you know, we've, we've seen the past several years you know, what's gone on with, with Iran and, uh, you know, still goes on with North Korea. These, you know, these these powers that, you know, think they can basically, you know, play, you know, control, you know, puppet, you know, the world through their nuclear arsenal or Putin as yeah. well. So, yeah, I think that... I think the movie as a whole definitely views the creation of the atomic bomb as a net negative, but I also think it does a good it, job explaining how... Why it was exciting to make. That's the contradiction. Yeah. It was like, science can be exciting. That's, that's the thing that is, you know, it's this contradiction. It's like, you know, again, at heart, Oppenheimer was a scientist. You know, he, you know, he, it was so, it was a revelation to figure out like, wait, you can actually split the atom or somebody did that before he could think of it. And, you know, he had to have all these people around him who could help him. And, you know, there's that aspect of creation. Yeah. And one of the themes in the movie is before he goes on the Manhattan project, he is a theoretical physicist. So people keep, people say to him repeatedly through the movie, like you work in theory we work in reality. Mm -hmm. We work in the world. Your head is in the cloud. Yeah. So I understand how, yes, it must have been intellectually stimulating to an unparalleled degree. And people, at one point, the general character, when he's trying to recruit people to Los Alamos, this professor is like, why should I leave my family? And he's like, Oh, because we're only working on literally the most important thing in the history of humanity. And you can see the intoxication of creation yeah. and the hubris. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder if on some level, I don't, maybe no one was conscious of this. Maybe he wasn't. I mean, it's also kind of a film about filmmaking. I thought that too. I thought <laughs> the that fact too. that, you know, you have to pull together a team, you have to make a plan, you have to execute that plan you have to in a sense like that the lead up to that 
that the testing of the bomb is like when you're trying to build up to the execution of like a perfect like stunt sequence or something. It's like you you got to try to make sure everything is going to come together just so. Um, in that sense, this feels like a much more mature version of Inception. <laughs> um, but yeah, and that's but that's that contradiction is what's at the heart for Oppenheimer and the and you know what Nolan is showing with the story is that Oppenheimer, yeah, he was this this, this theoretical scientist. He was an academic, <laughs> and you know he was also very he was also ambivalent about going too deep into politics you know except you of course giving money to the spanish civil war <laughs> which comes up a number of times it's almost kind of like a running gag um but then once he's really become you know once he the bombs have been dropped the war is over he he be, he becomes more of an advocate for like we should really control the arms we need we can't let this get out of control yeah. and that's when suddenly they look at him and go well who are you yeah because after after world war ii um there are people within like the american military and in and kind of intelligence apparatus who are like we got to make a hydrogen bomb now and a hydrogen bomb is much worse than a regular nuclear bomb for reasons I'm not going to pretend that I understand. It has to do with the difference between like fusion and fission. Yeah. Don't ask me to explain that. But all all you need to know is, you know, the hydrogen bomb is the one in Doctor Strangelove. It's not the atom bomb. <laughs> so Yes, Dimitri. <laughs> so there's this immediate jump to like, okay, we've made the atomic bomb. Now it's time to go on to the hydrogen bomb. Yeah. And I also think it's very much an indictment of kind of the American political system yeah. that what gets Oppenheimer at the end is not any moral qualms about the bomb. What gets Oppenheimer is the fact that he had moral qualms about the bomb and his yeah, previous affiliations absolutely. with the Communist Party. And, and and the whole, you know, and yeah, his affiliations with the Communist Party, I mean, that was mostly just like, a, you know, that was just background chatter for, you know, the real moment is when, you know, Jason Clark is one of the people in this interrogation room mm -hmm. and he's grilling Oppenheimer and Oppenheimer's like, it's very intense. And the room lights up again like it did when he's giving that speech to um you know all those uh students yeah and you can feel like you know he's it's it's impossible for him to grapple with this as it would anybody yeah and it's just yeah you get so much to think about with this movie i mean I don't know necessarily if I'd say that you said this movie was about everything. I do really. I, I don't know if that's true. I would say though, if you do see Barbie and Oppenheimer together, you have seen a mo You have seen two movies that are combined about everything. But yeah, because this movie isn't necessarily about like like the patriarchy. <laughs> no, it kind of is about the patriarchy actually. Because oh. okay, I thought. Maybe in a sense. To me, 
Hmm. And maybe I was reading into this. To me, it was very obvious that um, Oppenheimer's wife, who doesn't have a huge role, but she's it's in pretty it, crucial. Though. She's an embittered alcoholic, yeah. and to me, it's obvious that a lot of the reason why she's an embittered alcoholic is because she's marginalized because she's a woman. Because oh, yeah. there's that scene where she first meets Oppenheimer and they're flirting at um like a dinner party and he says to her like oh you're a biologist and then she's like i'm a housewife and yeah that that is that's a good point yeah and for the rest of the movie you can tell she's obviously a deeply unhappy woman and she's obviously an alcoholic yeah she's drunk and and or is she on pills too i no no you're thinking well florence Pugh, i think her character. So I who don't he th- has the affair with. I don't think it's an accident that um the these women that Oppenheimer's involved with that we're led to believe are very intelligent are like depressed, one of them commits suicide, they're abusing substances. Yeah, and he's very much haunted by the, the like Florence Pugh's suicide. So too. I actually do think there's a little bit about the patriarchy. Eh, yeah, I guess you're right. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, yeah. And there are even horses. There's a lot of horseback riding. Um, I want to talk also about the scene I was thinking about um, as like this really, I don't know if this happened in reality. I mean, I didn't read the, the biography that Nolan based off of this. Uh, but early on in the movie, there's this, uh, there are these scenes where you see like when Oppenheimer is still a student, mm-hmm. and he's really pissed off as professor, uh, you know, because mm-hmm. he's making him like miss a, a speech given by Kenneth Branagh's character, who will come back in the middle of the movie and give like the most important line in the film. Yeah. Um, and he sees this apple on his desk, and he decides like I'm gonna. I, I'm I'm just gonna inject this apple with cyanide, which is wow. Yeah. <laughs> that is quite a moment. You wonder, oh my god, is this professor gonna eat this apple? But then he goes home, he sleeps on it. He he realizes, oh, that was a horrible thing I did. I gotta like get rid of that apple. And he shows up, to, and you wonder, is he gonna eat that apple? And Finally, he gets it. Actually, it's almost going to be eaten by Kenneth Branagh, mm-hmm. and he gets it out of his hand. I feel like that's that's a metaphor for like what happens in the rest of the movie, isn't it? Yeah, because he 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 does the the bad thing. He realizes, oh my god, my god, what have I done? And he tries to erase it. And in that case, he just gets away with it. But it's only through like sheer luck he doesn't get away with that a second time that's a really good point that yeah that's a great it's a great introduction to his character and yeah that he has this vindictive part of him but he also but yeah as you but as we talked about moral qualms you know i mean again some people would not inject the cyanide into the apple at all in the first place yeah but and then also a lot of people would not choose to go and work on a nuclear atomic weapon. And, you know, and it's also fascinating, too, by the way, the just also the information that we get that they 
there was a real possibility they, with the atom bomb, they could have destroyed the entire world. Oh, it's a near zero chance. What do you want from theory alone? <laughs> um, and, you know, that, that implication, too, the fact that they would still continue to work on it, even though it was near zero, that, and again, they thought, well, all right, it probably won't happen. But the fact that it isn't zero is still chilling. Yes. And, and that the general didn't know about it until right before they were going to test. Yeah, and the reason why we're led to believe there's a remote possibility this would happen is the, once the atom bomb is detonated and once whatever is like released into the atmosphere, it would cause some kind of chain reaction exactly. that would never stop. Yeah, and of course, but then that leads to the last scene of the movie, and yes. the you know the the conversation that um, that that Oppenheimer and Einstein have where he's, you know, cause he refers back to like when he tried to get Einstein to help him with this, with these calculations about, you know, are we going to destroy the whole world? And he mentions back to that letter and he says, you know, remember when I said about that chain reaction, we actually did set it off. I, I know I'm misquoting that. Yeah. Where he says that, you know, we have the potential to dis to destroy the world. And he was like, I think we did it. And the last scene of the movie is just like a close-up on Killian Murphy's face as Oppenheimer, Quantum. where it's like, do you know that meme of, like, Matthew McConaughey, like, smoking the cigarette, looking, like, messed <laughs> up? What's that even from? I don't even remember. It's True Detective, I think. I thought so, but yeah. it's, like, that times a million. Well, it's funny, though, because the other image that's become a meme already from this movie is the shot of Oppenheimer with, like, his hand by his face, and he has that look where he has like the thousand mile stare. Chillian huh. Murphy probably gives like the best thousand mile stare I've seen in like a movie in years. Yeah, obviously he is absolutely spectacular. We, have, we haven't talked about, you know, the stuff in the movie yet. And But no, his performance is incredible. And I think... You need a very an actor of very high caliber because Oppenheimer is someone who we're led to believe who multiple people say in the movie is a very kind of like contained yeah individual. It, this is I think you know what you just made me think of. This is also how you do um I you've oft, we've often talked about uh off mic um Times where you are, you, you've talked about performances or movies where a character is very internal mm -hmm. and it's just, it's hard to, it's very hard to get that right yeah. in movies. Would you say this is one of the exceptions? Yeah, it's incredible because I, I do agree that that's one thing. It's very hard to capture in a visual medium a still waters run deep type of personality. Now I'm not saying he's quite as still waters run deep as like, you know, some other characters. And I'm blanking on one well, example. Well, I thought another like example of an actor doing a great job with this. And this character was completely internal was um, Lakeith Stanfield and Judas and the Black Messiah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's another example of an actor doing a fantastic job um, with an even higher degree of difficulty, because in Judas and Black, Judas and the Black Messiah, I said at the time 
His character, his character literally never has a moment where he can let his guard down and speak honestly about his emotions to another character in yeah. the movie. So it all is like stewing yeah. and internal. Yeah, and there's a lot, yeah, there's a lot of stewing. There's also, you know, times where he, you know, Chilean, you know, Chilean Murphy has to play Oppenheimer like in such a way where he can only say so much. Yeah. And, you know, he, he's not a politician and that's, but he has to sometimes try to think like one, even though like there's a very chilling scene with uh, Casey Affleck oh, who yeah. plays this uh, general who is really like the son of an anti-Bolshevik Russian who's like killed people with his bare hands. Mm-hmm. And it's like the way that they cut between um, Oppenheimer trying to explain himself to General Matt Damon and then in the room with General Casey Affleck and it's so intense even though it's just you know people talking in rooms and on a train it's th- that's it's one of those great movies where you just get all these men talking in rooms and you just love hearing them talk and mount in their like you know, political sniping and backstabbing. Yeah, and of course Oppenheimer is very arrogant because, like, how could he not be? No, yeah, yeah, because he is, you know, he is that smart. But with that, you know, there comes a price with that. And we, I, I also can't not mention Robert Downey Jr., mm-hmm. who just blew me away with this movie. And, you know, this character, Louis Strauss, it's like... My understanding is he was also well, he was he was a conservative. Yes. Um, yeah, that that doesn't surprise me. He he, and like so many conservatives, and forgive me any conservatives who are fans of the podcast. Uh, well, I say it so so much, um, but it, but he he exemplifies the type of conservative, small minded mindset who also you know he thinks you know oh you think you're. The hot shit, I can control, like, all the things in government that you don't even realize. And, like, you know, the way that he gets ahead of, like, a Time Magazine article. And he basically shapes the the interrogation room that's going to, you know, at Oppenheimer's security clearance, uh, you know, appeal hearing. It was great to see this because I haven't seen Robert Downey Jr. play a non-Tony Stark role in a long uh, it's time. The last time I can really think of that he was really trying to bring it was uh, a movie that, like, actually, it's funny, he didn't even get nominated for, and I think he was hoping to, that movie, The Judge. Yeah, I didn't even see that, so. Yeah, the, D- Duvall got the nomination, but he, he didn't. And, you know, the thing is, he's been... He was consistently great as Tony Stark. It wasn't like, oh, you know, he's suddenly bad. He was, you know, he was he was often, you know, he could deliver great work in those Marvel movies. But at a certain point, it's like, how many times can you see him do that? Yeah. You know, and you know, you know, you watch something like Tropic Thunder <laughs> or <laughs> or um, or or even going back to like the beginning of his career, like less than zero or Chaplin, you know, he, he, or Wonder Boys. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he's, he's got, you know, and this is a character who is not quite like, he's not a Tony Stark. He's a very much like this 
you know, very small man who has a lot of power, like one of those guys. And I have to say, I, I'm almost shocked by how much this movie cuts back and forth in time without ever feeling discombobulated. Yes. Like, I'm, I am not super, I am not well-versed in the history this movie is covering. I'd literally never heard of Louis Strauss before this movie. No, I mean, And I knew only the most basic, basic information about Oppenheimer. So I came into this movie with very little historical background and not even counting the flashbacks to Oppenheimer's student youth. We have regular cuts between what like 1941 and 1945 then there are scenes set in 1947 then there are the scenes set in, like 1953 1954 and we jump back and forth between them pretty regularly it does and yet i never felt lost i know ne- i thought i was i was i just like with gerwig with barbie i felt i was in the hands of someone who will take me to where I, you know, I, I need to go, even though I don't know where I'm going. Yeah. And that's like the sign of a really good storyteller. And that this is like the thing that I also, I came away with after this movie is I think this is possibly Christopher Nolan's best screenplay yeah. of his career. Like I'm, st- I still am on, I, I'm on, I'm torn between saying it's his best movie. I think it could be. I need to see it again. Because, um, I, again, I, I this is monumental achievement. But it's really in the script. Because so often, you know, I, I'm sure you and I have complained about at times his scripts um, have been a little clunky. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, like you watch something like The Dark Knight Rises and that is like... declaring its points you know (laughs) by like megaphone and you know don't even get me started on tenant you can go (laughs) listen our episode about that um we but anyway but in this it's just the dialogue is actually really fun and pleasurable to listen to even it's like and i'm sure you know he he's credited also jfk and you know, it has a bit of that flow to it too, where one of the things that's so pleasurable about JFK is just listening to really good, serious, dramatic dialogue. And, you know, I mentioned the social network earlier, and it's not like that clever, but there is a cleverness to it. Do you know what I mean? It's very clever. And the fact too, we're cutting back and forth in time frequently. Also, there's a very large cast where I, again, didn't know who most of these people were before seeing the movie. And there was never a point in this three hours. I never thought to myself, like, okay, where are we? I never thought, I was never confused about, like, where the characters were coming from, what what their alliances were, what their motivations were. The fact that this movie is structured kind of like, you know that meme from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia with like, the guy <laughs> and like, he's like Charlie Day, yeah. <laughs> the movie's structured kind of like that, honestly, but, but, um, but I but could the, always follow it. I could no, always follow well, it. Well, I think it helps, too, that he, it, once you, but, yeah, you can be, I think he understands, it's okay if you're confused maybe for a second, but, 
but at least you know who these characters are. And I think it also, it's very important that the cast is who it is. You know, the fact that you can follow along because you know it's this Robert Downey Jr. testimony scene. Mm-hmm. You know, the black, and I think the color changes help with that too. I think, honestly, if it was all the same color, mm-hmm. like if it was all color stock, maybe it would be a little harder to follow along. But maybe the color in black and white helps a bit. Oh, I gotta say, and, and because, like I said, the 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 settings are also very consistent. You know, you have this room, you have that room, you have Los Alamos, you have Oppenheimer's house, you have him crouching in this one field. That's it. I have to tell you my, I have to reiterate for the people the incredibly pretentious point I made right after the movie <laughs> about the black and white versus the color. Where since the black and white stuff is set in the 50s at the height of the Red Scare, it's a representation of the attempt to engineer this binary like black and white morality um, that didn't really exist actually during hmm. the war. Well, that is, a, that is interesting. Well, you know what though? Maybe that speaks to something no one said that he he actually sees like the color film is from Oppenheimer's point of view and the black and white is from Louis Strauss's point of view. Oh, so I was right because yeah. Louis Strauss obviously has a black and white way of thinking of the yes. world. And his morality yeah. is very basic and Oppenheimer's is yeah. very complicated. And I think you're right. It helps with the transitions. But even like when they transition to 1947, that's still in color. yeah. I'd have to watch the film again because I feel like there are there are a couple, there are a few moments in the fifties where you do see it in color. Maybe those are moments where Strauss's influence isn't really there. It's more Oppenheimer. Does that make sense? Because yeah. there, I feel like there are moments in the um, the appeal scenes where it is in color. Yeah. And I know it's, we're getting into the weeds and. Uh, by the way, the movie is brilliantly shot too. Hoyt, Hoyt van Hoytma, which is one of the best names <laughs> in the business, uh, he shot the film. It's all it was all entirely shot on IMAX cameras, and it looks incredible. I mean, again, it, as as people have said, you you are watching Chili Murphy's cheekbones for three hours, yes, and those beautiful eyes. Um, I'm trying to think of other things. I mean, th- so many good actors in this movie. It's like you think, oh, that all right, I've seen this actor. Oh, wait, no, there's this actor. No, there's this, this actor. I mean, Macon Blair, I, I he was one of the surprises for me. For those who don't know, Macon Blair is uh, a character. You might have seen this guy in some of Jeremy Saulnier's movies, uh, Green Room, uh, Blue Ruin. You know him. Yeah, I didn't recognize him until you pointed him out, even though I've seen those movies. <laughs> but that's like the joy of this film too. It's like it it, it kind of brings to mind like how, you know not just JFK but a lot of these classic Hollywood movies where you got real character actors. You know, like how your dad obsesses over like everybody in Psycho. It's kind of like that where it's like there's also Tony Goldwyn. There's also um, uh, uh, Jack Quaid, David Crumholtz, David Crumholtz. Who was the actress who's like the one chick? Sorry, Olivia Thurlby. That's her, right? I thought that was her. Oh my god! Yeah, Olivia Thurlby is in it. I mean, just and it's that's part of the pleasure too is watching 
you know, terrific, you know, good actors given like great material. And I know that seems like, well, that's a basic thing. That's what we go to the movies for. Yeah. But like, but sometimes there can be a lot of bullshit around all that. But yeah, I, I think this movie's a masterpiece. I think it's yeah. easily Nolan's best movie. It's easily the best movie I've seen so far this year. Yes. It is absolutely uh, incredible. Yeah. I, I'm sure I could go on even further about this, but you know, my main thought right now is I want to see it again. And if you guys have seen these movies, um, thank you for listening to us, by the way. Uh, go on and on about these. Please let us know on Instagram, on Twitter. Uh, you know, uh, Send Carrier Pigeon if you have to. <laughs> uh, have you done the Barbenheimer experience? Have you uh, been like one of the lucky people on this planet to see the movie in IMAX 70mm? You know, we saw it in the piddling 70 millimeter. And by the way, that <coughs> I've been seeing some people are having problems with their 70 millimeter screenings. We were fine. Although I don't think this, this wasn't that big a problem, but there were two moments where the audio cut out very briefly for a second. And the whole audience collectively went, <gasps> and we're not talking about <laughs> the scene that's deliberately silent. Yeah. Oh no, no. Oh. We're not talking. And about I, that. Oh, and that was, I want to mention, that's the last one thing I want to mention. The sound design is good. At least in the version I heard, if you have a different version, you know, let us know, but the sound was good. Sound was great. Yeah. Great sound design. All right. Um, yeah, so thank you for listening to us. Go on and on about Barbenheimer. Uh, uh, who knows what we get next? What next double feature we get in the theater? You know, <laughs> um, until next time, I am Jack. I am Trash Panda Corey. And I am become wages, the cinema <laughs> of death. Of hugs. Of hugs. Good night. Don't know me, yeah, but I can't change. I won't do